Hello, and welcome to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. I'm your host, Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, board certified therapist. I hope you've been enjoying the series on how to become a therapist and the exploration of all the different types of careers in mental health. And today we continue our exploration of those careers with Mamula Savan. She is a school psychologist. In this episode, I talk to her about what it takes to become a school psychologist, as well as what her role is in the mental health world. All right. Hello, everyone. As you all know, we are exploring different careers in mental health. And so I'm so excited today about my guest because it's been difficult to track down a school psychologist who's willing to speak with me. <laughs> and so I um, met Mawuli Sevan on Instagram. And so she graciously accepted the invitation to be interviewed so that we can kind of pick her brain about her career and about her job. So hello, Mawuli. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. So this is a super exciting episode um, because I want to hear all about school psychology. So can we go ahead and start by you introducing yourself to us? Sure. So my name is Mawali Savon, and I am a nationally certified school psychologist as well as a board certified behavior analyst. I am also the right now the executive director of the key consulting firm and i'm located in the dc um, washington dc metropolitan area awesome that's great so as always um we want to know why you decided to become a school psychologist and how you got there so which one do you want to start with what part of your story do you want to tell us first um such a long story, but I'm not going to bore everyone. So I'll just start with why I went to become a school psychologist. Okay, sounds good. Yes. <laughs> so I, I don't think you'll bore us. I think it's interesting. <laughs> I think people need to know, right? Like why we why we choose our careers. So I don't think it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> That's because I haven't started yet. Okay. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> It's definitely been a long process. I knew, I often tell people I knew by the age of about nine or 10, I wanted to be in the mental health field. So it is a long story. It's a long journey, but I've always been in love with thinking about how children learn and how they think and how they behave and how they play and all of that good stuff. So early on, I've always been in love with education as a field. And I always felt that if people had quality education or access to quality education or a quality education, they would be able to explore worlds that were not available to them. Otherwise, they would be able to open doors that would otherwise be closed to them. They would just have a better quality of life. And I felt that to understand the field of education, you had to understand how the brain works and how um, children develop and how people think and all of those good things. So I felt the best way I can contribute to the field of education is studying the science of psychology and influencing how people educate children. And that was early on before I even got to college. I knew that's what I wanted to do. 
by the time I got to college, I had a professor, she was a school psychologist, and she talked more about child development. So she was my child development uh, professor, and she told us a lot about how to use the things we were learning in class in the field. And I just fell in love. I was like, I need to become a school psychologist by any means necessary. This is what I want to do with my life. And ever since, I've been in this pursuit of becoming a school psychologist. That is so cool. So it sounds like you had always wanted to do this, that you had known early on in life that you wanted to explore the brain, um, understand how kids learn, and maybe impact the field by having that understanding. That's so cool. Yes. Yeah, I don't know how I figured that out, but <laughs> in the fourth grade, I already told myself, I'm going, I'm going to become a mental health clinician. <laughs> yeah, I like how it, like you said, with any, by any means necessary, like I'm going to get there. I know that's what I have to do. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about the field? So when, when I started to contact you and then more specifically right before this interview, I called you a doctor because my understanding of what a psychologist is, is maybe somebody who has a PhD or a PsyD, right? And they um, typically can be called a doctor if you're a psychologist. But then, you know, you corrected me and you talked to me a little bit about why that's not the appropriate title. Um, Can you talk to us about that? Because I'm a mental health professional and I feel like I have a little more exposure to the mental health field, and I didn't know that. So I'm like, uh, I think our listeners also need to understand that. Can you explain that to us? There are a lot of different specialties within our field. Um, A school psychologist can become credentialed by either getting their specialist degree in school psychologist, which really means they get an advanced um, certification on top of their master's degree, or they can go and get their doctorate degree so they can get a PhD, a PsyD, and there are school psychologists who have EDDs. Um, once you become specialist level, then you have to take, well, the doctorate also have to do the same thing. You have to go and get field experience, and it's 1,200 hours. And once you get your field hours, you have your credential as far as your education, you also have to take a test like most of us in the field. Mm-hmm. Each field has a different test. We have to take the practices, and then you apply, you submit all your paperwork, and you'll become a nationally certified school psychologist. So our title is school psychologist. It's very different from a psychologist who is a licensed psychologist, and that does require a doctorate degree. Ours requires a specialist degree at minimum or a doctorate degree. So... I make sure that when people are referring to me as my title, that I always make sure they include the word school. I am not a psychologist. I am a school psychologist. Very good. So there are... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Just to say, there are some school psychologists that are also psychologists because they have that doctorate degree level, level degree, and they have been licensed as a psychologist. Mm. Okay, so it sounds like the school psychology designation 
tells people that you have specialty certification or a specialty type of training in, you know, human development and understanding school and understanding children. And you can either have a master's degree and have uh, this designation, or you can be, um, a, you know, somebody who has a PhD or a PsyD, but then will also have to still get the specialty training to become a school psychologist. Okay. So many of the school psychologists I know who have the doctorate level degree, their doctorate degree is in school psychology versus getting it in clinical psychology or counseling psychology or organizational psychology. Theirs is in school psychology. I see. Okay. So that's interesting. I wonder. So you said that you had this uh, professor who was a school psychologist, and that's how you were kind of exposed to or you know the idea of becoming a school psychologist was solidified for you uh interacting with her yes she was my psychology teacher. she had her side d in school psychology from Rutgers university in new jersey and so she definitely had spent time practicing school psychology in traditional school settings and then she taught psychology courses around child development, educational psychology. Um, she also taught classes around race and psychology in my undergraduate university. Okay. So that's awesome. So what kinds of things do school psychologists do? Yeah, this is a great question because there's also a lot of confusion around the difference between a school psychologist and a school counselor. And so school psychologists oftentimes are known because we do psychological, psychoeducational evaluations and functional behavior assessments for children. We determine eligibility for special education. We also do some of the evaluations and testing that's required as part of special education law. So a lot of our job is around special education. We do some counseling, and our job also includes a lot of educational and behavioral interventions, which is one of my favorite things. Um, Mm. Our jobs also differ based on which school district you're in, which state you're in, and sometimes which school. Even the grade, if you're in elementary school versus a high school, it'll vary the things that you do on a daily basis. Okay, so there is some confusion about school counselors and school psychologists, but it sounds like for you all, it's more of a, it's a deeper dive into assessment and to figuring out what is happening with the student um, psychologically. So you conduct psychoeducational assessments. That's what you called them, right? Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about those? Like what, what kind of assessment is that? Sure. So when a child is suspected to have an educational disability or educational difference in performance, they will be referred to the school psychologist for a evaluation. Um, Typically, the referral process is usually starting with interventions unless the student already has a known medical diagnosis, such as autism, um, intellectually disabled things like that. 
So once the student is referred, the school psychologist, depending on the school district or the school they're in, will work with the team to determine interventions to take, in, to take into account just to see if we can help support the students so that they don't need special education. They can just catch up prior to them being put into special education. Um, depending on how they perform within the interventions, if they are successful and they catch up, then we'll continue with the interventions, we'll scaffold them down, and the student will be good to go. If the interventions are not successful, we can try new interventions, we can up the interventions, we'll check the fatality of the intervention, and if all those things are still not working, then the student will be evaluated for eligibility within special education. Depending on the needs of the student or what the concern is for the referral will impact who's included in that evaluation team. But regardless, every evaluation includes a, psycho a school psychologist and they'll complete either a psychoeducational evaluation or a comprehensive evaluation. And depending on the needs of the student, they may include the speech pathologist, an occupational therapist, a physical therapist. All of these people also will do um, their own evaluation. And so when we do our evaluation to determine eligibility for special education, typically it will include a, and again, this varies depending on the school district or the state. Because some states don't require this, but most do, will complete a cognitive assessment. So examples of those that people know most often are the Stanford Binet is a good example, the mm -hmm. Westler scales, which are for, they have different ones for children, preschool age, adults. And it just, in layman's terms, um, gives you an understanding of that child's IQ. It just gives you an IQ score. And we use the IQ score in addition to other information, such as background information, maybe the child was exposed to lead, maybe there's history of trauma, maybe there's a history of a brain injury. We take all this information, put it together to understand the learner and what type of interventions and strategies or accommodations they need to be successful. And then we also use that information to determine what is their educational disability. Would you say that you're responsible for maybe diagnosing children and then coming up with kind of like a what we would call in, you know, like a, a clinical setting, like a treatment plan. Um, so once you figure out kind of like diagnostically and systemically, right, like what is going on in this child's life? What kinds of um, physiologic physiological issues do they have or like neurological things going on and then you kind of like put all that together and create a plan so they can they can stay in school and they can be successful in school is that kind of the gist yeah, of it that's a great way to explain it so one thing i do often make sure people understand is there's a difference between the dsm which is the psychological diagnostic manual diagnosis you know, DSM is huge. Right, yeah. <laughs> and there's a difference between that type of diagnosis and an educational disability categorization. And so within special education, once again, it varies. But generally, nationally, there are 13 categories. And a student will be identified under one of those categories. So, for example, 
one that people often hear about is specific learning disability. A learning disability is a DSM diagnosis, but it's also one of the 13 categories under special education. So if the evaluation um, deems that a student has an educational disability under the category of a learning disability, then that will be their special education classification. Now, like you said, then we become investigators somewhat, and we design this intervention for the student or this treatment plan, which in schools is called the IEP, the Individual Education Plan. And it's individualizing instruction and the learning environment and all of these things for this student to get their needs met so they're successful in this educational environment. I see, I see. So, you know, I know in, so I'm in El Paso, Texas, and I know things vary by state and vary by city and all of that stuff. Something that sounds familiar to me um, is something called, or someone called, a diagnostician. Is that different than what you do? Or is that kind of the same role? It's kind of the same role. It's similar, but their credentials may be different. Um, for us, it's really surrounding the school. So all of our work is how, how are you performing in school? All of our goals are related to school. Everything is about school, school, school. So that's why (laughs) it's in the beginning of our name. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. I see. The things that come to my mind are like, you have to advocate for these kids a lot is what it sounds like is involved in the job. Um, Also, like a lot of teamwork, so leading a team of people to help, you know, stack the deck in the child's favor kind of thing. Um, Would you say that that's part of what you do? Yes, I love the fact that you use the word advocate because we do advocate that the student gets their needs met and we use our tools, our data, our information to understand what the student needs and in the meetings, we definitely say, okay, this is how this student learns. This is what this has shown me through my data, my observations, and this will be the most successful way to help this student meet their goals. Mm, okay. So I wonder, I think I have more specific questions about kind of like what it's like on the daily. So for example, um, could you walk us through maybe what a typical day would look like in the day of a life of a school psychologist? Sure. So I do want to give a disclaimer that I am a very uh, non-traditional school psychologist. I have done traditional school psychologist setting. I'm friends with a lot of school psychologists who are in the traditional setting. But I'll give a, a summary of what a typical school psychologist does. And then I'll give a, a synopsis of what I do, just so people know that even within our field, there's variation. And there's room for you to somewhat create your own position and and dream life and how you feel that you can add value to the field. So traditionally, school psychologists are assigned, um, once again, it varies, but they're usually assigned multiple schools. So sometimes three to four schools within their school district. Um, Based on the age, I know if you're doing elementary school, you're doing a lot more initial or eligibility evaluations because these are children who are new to schools. 
um, they're just learning. And so the some of the concerns as far as their performance is just starting to come up. Mm, okay. A typical day includes a lot of classroom observations, testing. So like, those are your opportunities to pull kids out and play with them while testing them, I'm getting to know them. Some school psychologists, maybe around lunchtime, they'll do lunch groups where they're teaching social skills to some of the children during lunchtime. Um, another big thing that school psychologists do is consultation. So maybe, I know for me, during lunchtime is a great time to do the consultation with teachers on helping them meet the academic or behavioral needs of their students because the students are in the cafeteria and the teachers are in the classroom. So we use that time. We do a lot of work with helping families. So if there are parents who um, maybe need some help with addressing their child's needs, we'll do some conversations there with those parents. And then we attend a lot of meetings, um, meetings, meetings, and more meetings. So, Oh my gosh. Yeah, there are a lot of, that's a lot of what we do. Okay. So it's very, uh, it does sound like it's teamwork oriented and you're, you you kind of have to have like some leadership skills because you are taking information about a child, um, advocating for them to make sure that everybody else that's involved with the child is kind of like doing their job. Um, it sounds like a lot of balancing um, and interaction with a lot of different people. So you have to have like really good people skills also, I would assume, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Especially if you're teaching social skills groups, you should have some good social skills. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, that's <laughs> funny. I mean, but that's a good point because I think maybe people who are listening to this podcast that are considering going into the mental health field have to understand that there are certain skill sets, like core skill sets that go into these jobs. And so if you feel like maybe you have strong, like organizational skills and advocacy skills and, um, you know, good social skills and people skills, school psychology might be a good fit for you, right? But if you're, like, socially awkward, you hate meetings, um, you know, you don't like talking to teachers, like, then you probably should not pursue this um, field of work, <laughs> right? Like, let's be realistic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think you, you explained that beautifully. I haven't heard anyone say that. But yeah, if you don't like meetings and you don't like collaborating, this will be a difficult um, position because we collaborate all of the time. Every decision that's made for a child and their IEP is a team decision. Even eligibility, you may do an evaluation for a student and all of your data says one thing, but the team has to agree. And if you're not a team player, this may be a difficult um, position for you. I enjoy the opportunity to work with so many other clinicians because I get to learn from them. Working beside speech pathologists and occupational therapists and physical therapists and even the school counselors and LPCs, you're continuously learning from all of these professions and their take on the child. We'll see the exact same child and we'll spend hours with the exact same child, but their interpretation of the child is different and what they bring to the meeting and to the table and to the conversation and to the IEP is different because it's based on their expertise like my view is based on my expertise. So it's a great opportunity to just continue to learn 
outside of the classroom. But yeah. you do have to be a team player and be able to collaborate. It has to be collaborative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great word to describe it, collaborative. Um, I know that there's some level involved. For example, I'm, I'm trying to compare it to my job. And obviously, I'm a mental health uh, therapist, a psychotherapist. Um, so I don't really go into schools and um, work with people or collaborate too much because we're kind of like in an office setting, right? Um, but if if you could describe kind of like how you interact with other mental health professionals in the community. So for example, how would maybe somebody like me end up getting involved in working and collaborating with a school psychologist? That's a great question. Um, that's something I've been exploring more recently. As a, so most of my work currently is in private practices. I own a consulting firm, so I consult with agencies, and I also contract with a private practice organization. So working alongside other clinicians is something I'm super passionate about because I'm able to educate them on how schools work while also collaborating with them on mental health, which I understand, but they may not understand the school part. So I'm just giving them a snippet of information about this new world. Um, and so when mental clinicians work with children, they often do have to work with the school psychologist or even get to know the school psychologist or talk to school psychologists because the client they have as a student attends the school and they're there often for large parts of the day. And sometimes based on the needs of our students or their experiences, some of our children who have experienced trauma, they may exhibit some concerning behaviors at school. And even if they don't, even if they don't have problem behaviors at school or behaviors that are concerning at school, but they have experienced adverse experiences outside of school, we should still be collaborating to make sure that we're supporting them in school since they spend such a large amount of time um, from their day in school. And so I do like talking to clinicians about Collaborating with your school psychologist, understanding how schools work, and understanding that whole IEP process, and as well as the 504 process, which is a whole nother document that's made to support children in schools. I see. I see. I I have another question about um, just school-age children in general. I know that when I was younger, I had no idea... Um, that, you know, there was a school psychologist available or um, like a diagnostician available. I remember going to my counselor's office and I mentioned this in the school counselor episode um, that his office was like in a basement and that was fun, right? I'm being sarcastic, but it was like, what the heck? <laughs> um, so I wonder like what you've been noticing nowadays in the, you know, late 20 teens um as far as like trends with either mental health or just trends that you're noticing about these kids that are in school now yeah that's a great question which is why i'm so in love with this field because we are now in a place in a position in history where we're able to influence how policy is being made 
around our students in schools. Um, we have a lot of racial and cultural disparities within education currently in our nation. And we all know that the demographics racially and culturally of this nation is changing. So I'm a child of immigrants and being a child of immigrants brings in its own unique experiences. And we know people are now talking about what it means to be an immigrant, what it means to be the child of an immigrant, what it means to be a child immigrant, and what it also means to be a refugee. And that's definitely on everyone's minds right now because of all the things that are happening within the news. And so us as mental health clinicians in schools, um, there's a need for us to be more present. Like you said, the school counselor, sometimes people don't know he's there. The school psychologist, people don't know they're there. They don't know where their office is. Their office isn't accessible. They're not available. And we need to know that we're bringing in diverse students with diverse backgrounds. We need to have more clinicians who are able to support them. Um, one thing I was telling a friend of mine is we have some schools that, especially schools in areas who are more disenfranchised um, and may experience more poverty and community violence, those schools sometimes have more security guards than mental health clinicians. Mm. Um, I can name a few schools who have several security guards, maybe four or five security guards, and they don't have a full-time clinician. And so when you're talking about students who are experiencing different types of trauma, different types of experiences, um, they're new to this nation maybe, their parents are new, they may not understand. We need to be supporting them. And it's not, oh, if you're new to the nation, you already have a mental health issue, but you you could be neurotypical, but now you have this acculturation that you have to navigate. Mm -hmm. and may need someone to talk to like oh I'm new here I just <laughs> don't know how to do this or this this is confusing me I know growing up as a child of an immigrant I was always acculturating every day every moment I'm still acculturating as an adult and there's still times I'm like I had no idea what that meant <laughs> yeah so having a person who studies that and understands that is great for schools having someone who understands trauma I'm in the D.C. area, and we are experiencing an influx of children who are migrating unaccompanied from Central America. And they talked about how one of the counties in my state is experiencing an influx of children who are self-reporting feeling more anxious than they have historically. Wow. And so these students need more support. Yeah. I'm just thinking about moving from your home nation to another nation is going to be a cursor for, precursor for experiencing some stress. I moved from Pennsylvania to Maryland. I felt a lot of stress. So I can only imagine how these students feel and they need to be supported. Hopefully that answered your question. I went off on a tangent. <laughs> no, and you know, I don't think it's a tangent. I think that you're just looking at it systemically. I think that that's how your brain works, right? Like as a clinician, you have to look at things from all angles kind of think critically about where these issues are coming from or what the solutions are going to look like, right? So, um, but I know that we're talking about uh, people who are moving to the country. Um, 
either because they're seeking refuge or there's violence in their home country or things like that. I live on the U.S.-Mexico border, so um, that's always something that we're having to deal with here. It's almost been like an everyday kind of thing ever since I was little. Um, my dad was from Mexico, um, and he has... Uh, he still continues to acculturate and he's always talking to me about, you know, the majority culture and how that has influenced his uh, worldview and how um, it affected his mental health. Even though he moved here when he was like really small, um, he remembers it being really difficult for him and his family. And so um, I treat immigrants a lot of the time. Um, I don't know. I haven't really looked at my caseload, but I at least one time a day, I have a family who um, I treat that um, either have migrated from Mexico, Central America, from somewhere else. And I think you're right. Um, this is a really important trend to keep track of um, because it's going to change the face of of our nation. And so people, I think, in mental health fields or in any serving field or human services field, you're going to just have to get used to the fact that this these are the kinds of issues that we're dealing with now. And we now have to recognize immigration as a culture. Um, it's something we definitely have to address. Um, and we can't just be like, oh, well, there must be other stuff going on at home. And then just like ignore the fact that this person just moved from another country. Um, we have to now do our like due diligence to ensure that we support them in the right ways. So I agree with you. <laughs> All that to yeah, say yeah. that I agree with you. Um, yeah. And I love the example you gave of your father and how stressful it is to acculturate and how he's still doing it because my mom's been here since 1980 and there's still times I'm, I'm observing her as a clinician. <laughs> I don't know how to turn that off. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to turn that off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially when you have someone who's in front of you and you're like, I can observe your behavior. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm like, oh, here's a moment where you're acculturating. I can clearly see this is a moment of acculturation and she's been here for 40 years. I have time to tell these to my friends and I'm like, okay, I didn't know or understand this nuance because I'm still acculturating, even though I was born in the United States. And so that's really important for us to um, talk about as clinicians and as people who work with children. And then there's this other conversation that's happening right now. I just read an article put out by APA around racial trauma that's happening in schools for children who are black or brown or from other parts of this nation, this world. And how we do present a lot of microaggressions in schools that are harming our children. So we do need to be aware of that as well as the demographics of our nation changes because we can no longer only serve or be effective for one group of children. We have to be effective for everyone. And it's, it's just going to be part of regular practice now. People just have to, have to, have to, have to integrate that. What advice you have for people who want to become school psychologists? Yeah, my biggest advice is please come along. <laughs> You're like, we need you. <laughs> I, yes, we need you. We, we have a shortage in the field, but I love this field. I love school psychology. Um, I have a lot of 
conference swag that says like I'm a school psychologist you see on my Instagram every other week it's like I'm a school psychologist <laughs> yeah you're very proud of it that's awesome yeah <laughs> <laughs> I love it um it's an amazing field it's an opportunity to help our next generation of children and especially for individuals who are bilingual culturally diverse um Either it's a racial diversity, gender diversity, sexual orientation, economic diversity. All of these diversities we need in our field. Our field is not as diverse as it should be. Our field does not mirror the diversity within the general population, which is a problem. Um, Oh, yeah. We need school psychologists who speak the language of our children so they can do the evaluation in the children's dominant language. Um, Because there is a lot of data around how many children who come from homes where other languages are spoken, how they perform in school, and they're often placed in special education when they really don't need to be. Mm -hmm. My parents, my mom, English is her third language. I grew up hearing a lot of languages. And, you know, that shouldn't be perceived as a weakness or a disability when it's just a difference. I communicate differently than other people. Um, and it's not just the words that come out of my mouth, but just mannerisms, body language, because there's so much communication, um, as a speech pathologist will tell you. <laughs> yeah. And so if you are, if you're from a diverse community, and even if you're not, and you feel passionate about making sure that all children receive quality education, quality care within schools, we need you in our field, um, and so I definitely suggest anyone who's interested about education and mental health look into school psychology and just do your research. That's great advice. And how can people get into touch with you if they have any questions or they're curious about what you do? Sure. So Instagram, I'm very active on Instagram. Um, I'm on there all the time. So if anyone wants to contact me on there, my Instagram name is the key consult and I definitely check my DMs. So if you would like to private message me, that's fine. Um, I had the same name across social media on Facebook and Twitter as well. The key consult. You can also check me out on my website, which is www.thekeyconsult.com. I try to make everything the same. <laughs> that's smart. That's very smart. Yes, absolutely. So if you want to get into touch with Mawuli Sivan, you can find her on Instagram at the key consult, which is how I found her. I found her first. Ha ha. Just kidding. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, I just want to thank you for taking time to do this interview. Um, it sounds like you're a very busy woman and um, I wish you the best in everything you do. And thank you so much for doing all the work that you do with kids. It's so important. And so um, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. And I'm so happy you're doing this podcast. This must be very helpful for students and younger people who are in school and even us clinicians who are just out here doing the work. It's great to have someone to talk to, even if you're just listening to them talk. (laughs) Yeah, it's great to kind of have somebody to relate to, even if you're not really talking to them but you know you're hearing the conversation yeah definitely to find out more about this series on different mental health professions or to get into contact with Mawuli Savan 
you can contact me at hello at through the eyes of a therapist.org or visit the website www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.org. Remember that you can listen to this podcast for free on any podcatcher. So iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes, Google, Podbean, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And I guess I'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. This is Krista Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, board certified therapist. Thanks for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist.